Good morning again. <laughs> so in March of this year, uh, there's a study that came out. And this study came out from the Cultural Research Center um, in Arizona. Uh, it's a Christian university in Arizona. And the study was entitled, The Worldview Dilemma of American Parents. And so what this study did was it, it gathered hundreds of, uh, of data, hundreds of parents, uh, took part in this study. And what they did was they just answered basic questions about how they viewed the world, right? Their worldview, their beliefs, the convictions uh, that they had. And the hope of this study was to figure out where these beliefs, where these convictions were founded, uh, where they were coming from. And what the study revealed was something really interesting. It revealed that instead of American parents, or just American adults really, having one consistent worldview that they operated from, uh, many people's beliefs actually were, were formed by a mix of a lot of different worldviews. It was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and it came together into one worldview that didn't really have one set name. Uh, the study showed that there's seven major worldviews that Americans are uh, influenced by. I'm going to list them. I'm not going to have time to go into them today. But if you want me to send you these uh, this week or even the link to the study, feel free just to shoot me a message, Tony at RivChurch.com. I'll send them to you. But this is the seven major worldviews that American adults are influenced by, okay? Biblical theism, Eastern mysticism, Marxism, moralistic therapeutic deism, nihilism, postmodernism, and secular humanism. Okay, those are the seven. You may know of some of those, and some of those may be new to you. Uh, but George Barna was the one who, who led this study. He leads a lot of studies like this. This is kind of his thing. Um, but this is what he, this was his conclu- one of his concluding statements about the, the research. He says, as we've done this research, what we've discovered that is, frankly, we don't like any of those worldviews as, a, as individual ones. Instead, what we do is we listen to all of them. We take bits and pieces from each one. We blend that together into a customized worldview that describes what we feel, what we think, what we want, where we want to go, and how we want to live. So the name for this customized worldview uh, that Barna mentions that many people have, the word is syncretism. Now, according to Webster Dictionary, syncretism is the amalgamation of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought. So from that definition... I need another definition. <laughs> I don't know about you. I'd look up amalgamation. Like, pretty humbling when the definition needs a definition. But um, amalgamation is the process of combining two things. I don't know why you don't just say that, but whatever. Um, but, but really, what's happening is we are taking bits and pieces from all these worldviews, and we're making them into something that fits us. And this is actually kind of common, right, for what we do just in normal life. We take bits and pieces of everything— for our comfort, for our desires. Like one of them is entertainment, right? You don't have to subscribe to cable and get the 4,000 channels anymore. Uh, You can actually just pick and choose where you get your music, your TV shows, your movies, and it's usually a few different services, right? You sign up for, for Hulu, you watch five seasons of a show in two days, and then you cancel it, right? And then you go get Netflix or something like that. Like that's kind of what we do, right? We kind of customize areas of our life. We do that with shopping, we do that everywhere. But here's the thing. Well, I think this is common for all of us in different areas of our life. I think that customization of our beliefs, of our spiritual convictions, often happens too as we follow Jesus. We're currently in a series here at Riv called Onward We Stumble, where we are looking at the various things in our life uh, that may cause us to trip up in our faith. And one way that we stumble, I think, that this research shows us is when it comes to the topic of worldliness. 
Now, to be worldly means that we are more devoted to the temporal world rather than the spiritual world, the eternal things of God. And I think this can happen in a few ways. I think this happens when the voices of news outlets and social media experts are more influential in our lives than the Word of God. I think this can happen when we become indistinguishable from the world and culture that we live in when it comes to what we believe. See, when you open up the Bible and we see worldliness described, it's described as the opposite of godliness. And godliness is that quality of becoming more like God and how we think, how we live. And that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at these two ideas, worldliness and godliness, and we're going to do it in a particular way. We're going to look at three warnings the Bible has for us against worldliness. We're going to look at two exhortations to godliness. And then finally, we're going to look at one reality that we must navigate when it comes to both of them, okay? So if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be jumping all around uh, the Bible today. But if you have a Bible, try and keep up. They'll all be on the screen. Uh, We're going to start in 1 Corinthians. That's in your New Testament. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians was a letter uh, that the Apostle Paul had written to the church in Corinth. Uh, Paul, what he did in his ministry, he traveled around. He planted churches, shared the gospel, and then he would leave. And he would go do that somewhere else. And one of those churches he helped plant was in this Greek city of Corinth. And in chapter 3 of this letter, we see a concern that Paul has for his Christian brothers and sisters in this particular church, okay? This is 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes this, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? Okay, so right before this, this is important to know. uh, Paul had written to the Corinthians in chapter 2 of this letter just about how the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person, that is what empowers them to understand things of the Spirit. Okay? To an unspiritual person, a person who's not a a follower of Jesus, like the things of God are going to seem foolish to that person. But to a Christian, one who has the Spirit, they will be be empowered by God's help in understanding the Word, the things of God. But in chapter 3, what Paul is saying here is that even though this group of people had the Spirit, even though they were believers, Paul couldn't speak to them in the way as if they did have the Spirit, if that were true. Why? Well, he tells them it's because of their immaturity. These Corinthian Christians were babies in Christ. Their entire lives, think about it, their entire lives up to the point where they had decided to follow Jesus were spent in Corinth, worshiping false gods, living according to the Corinthian culture and standards. And now that they were Christians, uh, their faith was to be changing them. What they worshiped, how they lived, what they did, what they didn't do. But in that process of changing, they were still young. They still looked a lot like an average Corinthian. But according to Paul... What they're saying is that they were still worldly. He says it twice. Look what he says, verse 2. In fact, you're still not ready for me to begin sharing these spiritual things with you because you're still worldly. Since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? Behaving like mere humans there, what Paul is saying is like you look like the world. 
here we see that worldliness can often just be a sign of spiritual immaturity. Now that word to be immature, what that just simply means is that you haven't grown up yet. And immaturity isn't always a bad thing, right? I mean, think about kids. Think about children. Kids have not grown up yet. Therefore, they're going to be immature in how they think about the world, how they think about themselves, how they make decisions. I mean, I'm reminded of this with my own kids every day. Two boys, they're eight and five. And I think, why do they just want candy all the time? Like all the time. And then I think about it. I'm like, okay, eight-year-old Tony, if my parents would have let me choose whatever I wanted to eat all the time, candy, like every day, <laughs> like no doubt. Like why? Because I was immature. Eight-year-old me, not thinking about the food pyramid, okay? I'm thinking about Skittles for breakfast. That's what I want every single day because I was immature. Biologically, kids are immature. But there's a time when immaturity is a bad thing right? It's when you should be mature, but you're not. Someone comes up to you and tells you, grow up. That's a sign. You're immature. (laughs) You need to be thinking with more maturity when it comes to this. But see, in this passage, we see a link here between worldliness and spiritual immaturity. A more spiritual immature person, they're going to look more like the world, than God, right? And that makes sense. If you were to put two people next to each other, a follower of Jesus for 20 days and a follower of Jesus for 20 years, this person is going to look like the world, right? And that makes sense because they're a spiritual infant. They're learning to crawl. They're drinking spiritual milk because they're not ready for the solid food. But even though that's the reality, it's really the best thing for that person to grow up. And the real problem is if this person is still needing spiritual milk, if they haven't grown up in the 20 years of becoming a follower of Jesus. See, in this passage, we see Paul is telling these Corinthians, hey, it's time for you to grow up here. A struggle with worldliness is often a sign that we aren't growing spiritually as the Spirit would want for us, as the Spirit would come alongside and do in us. We see a similar warning for worldliness in the book of James. James was a letter authored by the Apostle James uh, to Jewish Christians who had been scattered. And James writes this in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So similar to what Paul here had written in 1 Corinthians, James takes time to address what he's seeing in this group of Christians. And he talks about the passions that wage war among them, inside them. Look at that list of things. Wars and fights among you. You desire, but you don't have. You murder and covet, but you don't get what you want. You fight, you wage war. You don't have what you want because you don't ask. And when you ask, you don't get what you want because it's from selfish motives. If you think about that list, what does that list reflect? It reflects the world. Look at some of those things. War, murder, coveting, selfish motives, 
fights. Remember who this was written to. It was written to Christians. People who had put their faith in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross for their sin. And then after that list, James asks them a rhetorical question. He says, don't you know friendship with the world is hostility toward God? James uses a phrase there that helps us think about worldliness in a different way. And he talks about friendship with the world. Take a minute. Think about the friendships you have in your life. Maybe early childhood friendships, friendships that you have today. Uh, What makes friendship a reality for you? Similar interests, right? Time spent together, enjoyment with one another, comparable values, morals. What What a friendship is, it's a peaceful relationship with someone you share a bond of affection with. And for these Christians in in James, they had befriended the world. The values and the morals of the world had more of an imprint on them than the values and the morals of God. And we see here in the scripture, there's not much of a gray area when it comes to this. James writes, look, if you're going to be friends with the world, if that's what you're going to look like, that's hostility toward God. Here we see again just how far apart worldliness and godliness really are. If we find ourselves reflecting the world, befriending it, reflecting its values, pursuing fulfillment in what it promises, what we're doing is we are standing against the God who saved us, who actually promised us a more fulfilling life in him. It's so challenging for us not to love the things of the world, though. Right? I mean, not, not to want those things <laughs> that we wanted before God saved us, because they appeal to us. Those, those passions that wage war within us, our desires, our wants, our dreams, our comforts. We see this in 1 John when he writes to Christians as well. Chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, John writes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, it is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So again, like Paul and like James before him, John was writing to Christians here, and he was warning them against worldliness. And he tells them plainly, he's like, look, don't love the things that the world is selling you, the things that the world is promising to fulfill you. And he has three categories for what those are. The first thing he says is the lust of the flesh. What that is, that's the fulfilling of natural and fleshly things like food and, and sex and, and comfort, good gifts from God, but fulfilling those in a way that the world would tell you to, uh, in a way that's not honoring to God. You have lust of the eyes, right? That's covetousness. That's jealousy, selfishness. And then you also have pride in one's possessions. Arrogance, greed, pride, right? But it's after these worldly postures, we see John tell them, like, this is why those things just aren't worth your pursuit. Verse 17, he says, The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Here's the truth. This world that we're living in, it's passing away. Those pleasures are fleeting. All the worldly stuff we accumulate, we can't take that with us when we go. It's all going to fade. Just three passages here. We see 
how worldliness is often reflected in, in a few ways, in spiritual immaturity, in friendship with the world, and just our desires and loves being wrapped up in what the world offers us. Thankfully, the Bible does not leave us without encouragement in what to do instead, in what to pursue instead. And we see clearly in the, in the scriptures that it's godliness that should be our pursuit. And there's a lot of these in the Bible. But for the sake of time, I'm only picking two. Okay, you can go find other ones on your own this week. But uh, where we're going to start is in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 1. This is Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, this is what Paul says toward the end of his letter. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, a little trick, you ask what it's there for. Cheesy, but helpful, okay? And so therefore what's happening is Paul is connecting this phrase he just wrote to a previous one. Chapter 4, what, what Paul is, was writing them, the, the section's entitled Living the New Life. Ephesians chapter 4 is this long list, this exhortation of this is what godliness looks like, Ephesians. This is what you do. This is how you think. This is how you treat one another. But then the summary statement of chapter 4 is Ephesians 5, 1. It's those four words. Therefore, be imitators of God. Is there anyone in your life that you can imitate really well? Maybe a family member. Don't I mean, they might be sitting with you, so just don't do it. But uh, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a celebrity. So I grew up in the 90s. Um, so my childhood was spent imitating Jim Carrey, okay? Uh, and I learned how by committing myself to just really life-changing, award-winning films, okay? Like Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Uh, those are my two. And I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure I annoyed my parents every day of my life uh, those years because I was just walking around acting like Jim Carrey. But see, looking back, as, as like, I'm not really proud of that, but that's just what came to my head, something about me, I don't know. But see, what, what, looking back on that time, I knew almost every line from those movies, and I still do, okay? <laughs> because of how much time and effort I put into those movies. And I know it's silly, but see, that's how we learn to imitate. Whether it's someone we know or a character from a movie that we've seen over and over again, our ability for imitation comes from time spent knowing that person. In Ephesians 5, we see, that, we see that as dearly loved children of God, that is who we are. We imitate God with our lives. We commit ourselves to godliness. We can only do that if we know who God is. If you're wondering where to go in the Bible for that, like where would you even start, um, I would encourage you to start in the Gospels. The Gospels are the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And when you read those accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you, what you see is you see the character of Jesus everywhere. You see how he spoke, who he spent time with, how he used his time, how he prayed, how he worshiped, how he built relationships, how he lived. When we spend time growing in our understanding of Jesus, our lives will reflect him. Our lives will begin to be marked by godliness instead of worldliness. But see, that's not always an easy thing to prioritize, right? 
And we see that in these other encouragements in the Bible. We see words tacked on to how we should pursue godliness. And one of them we see is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is a letter that Paul had written to a young man named Timothy. Timothy was a guy who had become a Christian uh, through Paul's ministry, traveling around. And, Paul, and Timothy had really left everything with Paul and gone and traveled around. And Timothy was actually pastoring a church as a young man um, at this time. But Paul wrote him a letter, and he told him to pursue godliness in a particular way. This is 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes this, have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the word that Paul wants Timothy to think about when it comes to his own life pursuit of godliness is the word training. What comes into your mind when you think of the word training? For me, what comes into my mind is I think about distance running. So for a long time, this has been a hobby of mine, something I really love to do. I like to travel, I like to travel sometimes and do a race every once in a while. But, but I have learned that in order to successfully finish a race, training isn't an option. It's not. Like I've run races before where I've been really committed to the training and ones where I thought, I could probably do that. And this race over here, don't do it. It's brutal. I mean, it's, it's just so hard. There's not joy in that because you're not prepared. There was a guy I knew in college. He, he woke up one day a week before a marathon. And he's like, I'm going to do that. And he did it. And he was an athletic guy. Like he, I mean, he could have run races shorter than that. He finished the marathon. Physically injured, though. He injured himself. He, he messed up his body because he was not ready. He hadn't trained. But then on the flip side of that, a couple years later, I asked a friend of mine uh, to run a marathon with me, and he had never run further than two miles. Like when I asked him, he like laughed. (laughs) He's like, really? You want me to do that? Um, But he said yes. He wouldn't have run this race if he wasn't asked, but he trained for months. He stuck with it, and he finished that race uninjured. Said he was never going to do it again, But (laughs) that training, it got him through. That was the difference. See, as followers of Jesus, our pursuit of godliness happens in the same way. It's training. It's diligence. It's intentionality. It's commitment. When we spend time reading the word, living out the word, prioritizing prayer, prioritizing life in community with one another, serving one another, that is training. Those are the miles we're putting in. And don't miss what Paul says about that pursuit. Paul says, while physical bodily training is of some value, training in godliness is helpful in every way. Because it not only trains you for this life, it trains you for the next life to come. Two encouragements toward godliness here we see. Be imitators of God and train yourselves in godliness. So as we think about these words, worldliness, godliness, we need to take some time to just understand the reality that is before us here. And and thankfully, Jesus really gives it to us clear what this reality is going to be like uh, living in this world as as followers of him. And we see this come uh, from Jesus the last night with his disciples that he had. Uh, He had gathered his friends, shared a meal with them, and he was preparing them for life 
uh, as followers of him, but without him, because he was about to be crucified. He's about to resurrect and ascend into heaven. And he took a moment to share with them how the world was going to view the disciples. And this is John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. Jesus tells them, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So what Jesus is telling his disciples is that there's going to be things about them. Who they are in Christ. What they value. Who they worship. That the world is going to hate. And Jesus tells them, when the world hates you, no, it really hates me. Later in the evening, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for strength and for courage and for boldness as they go out from there. But he prays for them in this reality. This is John 17. Turn a page. John 17, verse 14. This is Jesus praying to his heavenly father about his disciples. He says, I have given them your word, God. The world hated them because they are not of the world. This is, I'm not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world. This is, I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. There's going to be time, times, when we experience hardship and hostility from the world because of our allegiance to Jesus. Because the things we believe that come from here, the things that we strive for, they're going to be different than the world that we live in. And notice in Jesus' prayer, he doesn't say, hey, God, can you just take those disciples out of it? Just get them out of there. No. He says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I'm praying, God, that you protect them from the evil one. And we see here in this, in this prayer a phrase that describes this. Maybe you've heard this before, how Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. Maybe you've heard that. What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like a few things. I think it looks like first to be in the world, but not of the world. That means we know what's going on in the world around us, right? We have an awareness of the things, the events that are happening in the world, in our city, in our state, in our country, in the world. Like we know what's happening. But what this also means then is that we understand as much as we can what the world believes, what the world values, it's, that's when we start making the connection between the events and the things that, that people are saying or doing, and we connect them to, oh, this must be what they believe then. But then the final thing, being in the world but not of the world, what that means is that we stand on the word of God. No matter what. We reject things in the world if they're against God and what he's told us in his word, but then we celebrate the things that are happening in the world that align with God in his word. In order to do either of those things well, to reject or to celebrate, we need to know what this word says. This must be the place we go, always, with how we should think, what we should believe, what we should do. See, as I was thinking about this message, a lot of different topics, a lot of different issues came to mind. 
just about what the world thinks. And, and I think what the word says, what the word thinks, the word of God. And I want to take a moment to share three of them. You know, I think there's a lot of these, um, but three came to mind for me. The first one is, is care for the poor, for the oppressed, and for the refugee. We see that how the world and the word often disagree on how this group of people are to receive care and love in, in our world. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. So in the first century, orphans and widows, they were often neglected in their communities. They lived in, they had no voice, they had no power, and they had no influence. But Christians were to step up for them, step in for them, care for them, provide them with what they needed. Let's jump back to Leviticus 23. This was an Old Testament command that, that God had given to the Jewish people, but it's in this command we see a principle that's really, that's really important for us. Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. So this is God telling uh, the Jewish people who had fields, like, hey, don't take everything that you have worked hard to get. Leave some of it for those in your community who are poor, for the foreigner. And again, this may not have much practical application for us today, right? As here, not non-Jewish, not under the law, but in, in that we see God's concern and care for the poor. That God's people were to be generous toward them. Flip back a few chapters to Leviticus 19, a similar thing. When a, verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God calls these Jewish people to remember how God cared for them when they weren't in their country, when they weren't in their land. That is how God's people are to show up. They were to love and care for those that the world often rejects. Second issue is this, the sanctity of human life. The world and the word disagree on the sanctity of human life and when life begins. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is the prophet Jeremiah talking about himself here. Verse 5 of chapter 1. This is God speaking to him. I chose you, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So again, these words are from God to Jeremiah, a man that he had chosen for a very specific purpose, and that was to be a prophet in the world. But look at what we see God tell him. He chose him. He set him apart before he was born, before he formed him in the womb. God had a mission for Jeremiah's life. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. In the very beginning of the Bible, the first chapter, we see the inherent value of human beings. We are the only thing in creation God made in his image. We bear the imago Dei. 
Because of that, every life, whether that life is in the womb or that life is about to pass on to eternity, every life has dignity. Every life has worth. Finally, Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. This is a Psalm of David. David said, For it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, God, because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. This is David reflecting on God's goodness, on his creativity, on his involvement in creating human life. That power, that, that creation is seen in how God designed life to happen, how he designed it to come forth. God is intimately involved in the creation and in the development of human life. And it's in these verses, it's in the word of God, we see God's desire is for human flourishing. That we would protect and preserve life because every human being has value and has worth. The last issue that the word of God and the world disagree on is our need for a savior. They disagree on Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus' name. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. The world will push Jesus aside as a moral person, as a good teacher but they will reject him as a savior. That happened when Jesus lived. It happens today. But the world, or but the, I'm sorry, the word shows us our sin. The word shows us our need for a rescuer. Jesus is that rescuer. There's salvation in no one else. Our pursuit of godliness means that our convictions and our beliefs and our decisions will be founded on the word of God instead of the world that we live in. And what that means is that we are going to be uncomfortable. This world is not our home. We're not going to look like the world. There's no friendship there. Remember Jesus' words. The world hates you. It hates me. I'm not praying, God, that you take them out of that. God, protect them in that. And God, as you sent me into the world, that's what I'm doing for my followers, people who believe in me. I'm sending them into the world. We're often drawn towards syncretism, customizing our worldview, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And we do that sometimes to fit in. We do that sometimes to avoid that hostility. And hatred. I'm tempted to do that. But as followers of Jesus, this is where our worldview is founded. It's here, the Word of God. 
But as we remember Jesus' words, his prayer from John 17, we also need to remember Jesus' posture. We need to remember how Jesus lived. Because when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus, you have the written record of the godliest person who ever lived. A man who never sinned. A man whose life was lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. Look at what was said about that man. Matthew 11, verse 19, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. The Son of Man, this is Jesus talking. The Son of Man, that's him, came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus spent time with people in his community that others didn't. Jesus spent time with notorious sinners, with tax collectors, with those on the outside of religiosity. And don't miss what they said about him. The godliest person who ever lived was accused of worldliness. And that accusation came because of how he lived. He went to those who needed him. Jesus didn't spend time only with his disciples in a holy huddle, okay? Just discussing spiritual things and protecting himself from the big bad world around him. No. He took his disciples to those places that people judged him for. He shared himself with people that the religious community condemned. This tells us something about godliness, doesn't it? Not only do we stand firm on the things that God has told us in his word, but we live in the way that God did when he came to rescue us. He engaged. He didn't retreat. He stepped forward. He didn't step back. See, this is what we strive for. We strive to believe the things God has said in his word, to remain steadfast when the world disagrees, and then to engage to go where people are, to reflect God's love and goodness to everyone, to respectfully disagree sometimes. Are you stumbling with worldliness? Are there places in your life you you struggle to stand where the word of God stands? If that's true of you today, I just want to take a minute to encourage you. Remember where your faith and your allegiance lie with Jesus. It's in the word of God. It's not with the world. Let us treasure what God has said to us. Let this be what we treasure more than anything else in the world. Because the truth is your life is in the hands of a great God who cares for you, who's given his life to save you. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, your life and your identity are secure in him. And it's that truth that leads us to engage, to live on mission, to share our lives with people, knowing that even though the world may hate us, the world may reject us, our God never will. Let's pray. God, I do, I just thank you so much for your word. God, it's so hard to imagine standing, remaining in you 
without your word. God, you have blessed us. You have given us the gift of knowing who you are, knowing Jesus, the gospel, the light, his life, death, and resurrection, God. And we have that at our fingertips. God, I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that you have put us in this world to be your lights. In the book of Acts, God, you say that you, you know where we live, when we live, and that's all for a purpose, God. You've put us here in this local church family, in our communities, to love you, to reflect you, to share you with others. And God, I, I confess even my own struggles with, with worldliness, just believing that the things of the world are going to satisfy me. My mind's often wrapped up in those things. And sometimes I get those things, <laughs> and they don't satisfy me. And your word tells me that. God, I pray for us that we would pursue godliness, reflecting you brightly. And God, we do that by knowing you and, and enduring in you as well. Help us do that, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.